Welcome to New Thinking for a New World, a Tilburg Foundation podcast. I am Alan Stoga, your host. Each week, I bring you conversations with people who think differently about the great issues that are shaping our world. Geopolitics, disruptive tech, mass migration, the changing climate, culture wars, all of it is grist for our mill. I hope you enjoy listening. I also hope you will let me know what you think and that you join the conversation at telbergfoundation.org. And now for today's episode of New Thinking for a New World. According to the WHO, the COVID pandemic killed almost 7 million people worldwide. The full bill was undoubtedly far greater, not only in terms of lives lost, but of liberties suspended, economies disrupted, educations interrupted, economic development foregone. All in all, one of the blackest swans to have landed in the global pond in a long time. By any measure, the pandemic was a global problem that demanded a global solution. Indeed, we all remember the mantra, we are all in this together, but in practice, we weren't. Nationalism and self-interest triumphed. The U.S. and other high-income countries privileged self-defense over collective security, at least most of the time. Why did that happen? Why didn't ethical considerations do more to shape a truly global response? And what does that tell us about how major countries will respond to other global problems? Climate, for example or indeed to the next pandemic. Dr. Ruth Faden is an American scientist, academic, and ethicist. She has spent years thinking about human rights, ethics, and justice. If any American has thought about the pandemic in a global context, Dr. Faden has. Welcome, Ruth, to New Thinking for a New World. Thank you, Alan. It's my pleasure. Let's start at 60,000 feet. UN Secretary General Guterres has called COVID-19 vaccine inequity, and I quote, the biggest moral failure of our times. Do you agree? Well, it's right up in there, is what I would say. It's got to be among the most egregious moral failings of our times, because it was truly an indefensible state of affairs. So why did it happen that way? Who's, who failed? Why did they fail? It was predictable, right? It was completely predictable. There has never been a global threat, not only a public health global threat, but any kind of global threat in which the world's poorest countries and the world's poorest people didn't suffer the most. It's kind of baked into the profoundly unjust structures for the global economy and for global politics. There was an attempt a valiant attempt to have this time be different with the setting up of something called Act A and the COVID uh, initiative, which was an effort, very last minute, very quickly put together to try to ensure equity in vaccine access and also access to other medical countermeasures in this particular pandemic. I could go into great detail, and there are many postmortem reports explaining why, despite the good intentions, the outcome was not as we would have liked. Let me just say two things really quickly. One, it could have been far worse. As awful as it was, eventually vaccines were getting to all the countries of the world. And that's noteworthy. Having said that, 
what we saw is exactly what we have seen in the past. And that is a kind of unbridled, unconstrained nationalism in the vaccine marketplace. Effectively, what happened is that the wealthy countries of the world went shopping, cleared the shelves before low and middle income countries could even get in the store. As you said a moment ago, it wasn't surprising. We live in a nation state based world, even though we thought, maybe pretended that we'd had decades of globalization and even globalism. But we got what we got because the nation state won out once again. Is that fair? Yeah, well, absolutely. It's fair, Alan. Look, we have a global order that's based on a structure of nation states. Right? We know that that structure is profoundly uh, flawed from the standpoint of global justice. The playing field is horribly uneven in the global marketplace and in the political arena more generally. There is a place, right, even in the way in which we think about global justice for nation states to take the interests of their own residents first. And that's built in to the way in which the global order operates. All of human rights is premised right on the assumption that the first line of defense in protecting individuals' human rights is the nation state. That's where the responsibility in theory sits. The problem, of course, is that many people live in countries that either are failed states or are so economically impoverished, they can't act to honor their obligations to their own residents. They just don't have the resources or the structures or the governance in place. So in that kind of a dynamic, you've got wealthy countries who understand, not inappropriately, that their first line of defense is their first obligation, I should say, is to protect their own residents. And I'm intentionally saying residents and not citizens. We can speak about that more in a bit. But it's not an unbridled obligation. It's not without an obligation to people who live in countries where their uh, institutions are not possible, are not positioned, I should say, to protect their residents. But that is the dilemma. You have you, you spoke earlier of good intentions. I found myself wondering when you use that terminology, whose good intentions? The good intentions of the foundations that set up this entity called COVAX. Right. The Welcome Trust, the Gates Foundation, the WHO, all partnered right, to try to create a kind of mega structure that would, for the first time, ensure that the world's poorest people and that the world's least powerful countries would still get access to medical countermeasures in this particular pandemic. And as I said, COVID, um, the COVID pandemic was a little bit better than other pandemics in the sense that eventually most countries in the world did receive 
vaccine supplies, but way too little too late. And you would hear people pleading, right, pleading with the wealthy countries of the world to sort of hold back a little bit, stand back a little bit. It just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. And what's your conclusion from that in terms of prediction? Is there enough recognition that it should have happened and hence maybe it will next time? Or is this the world we got at the moment? You know, Alan, this is one of those moments when you want to have a visual with the podcast, because if you could see the despair on my face, right? I'm absolutely sure of it. I'd like to think, right, that this was such a dramatic, such a, as you say, sort of black swan event of enormous proportions and there is a general recognition, a widespread recognition of failings at multiple le- levels. I mean, we could go on for a very long time talking about all the ways in which the pandemic and the policy responses to the pandemic at the national as well as the global level really served to exacerbate underlying structural injustices. I mean, nothing, nothing good happened here except for the the development of these countermeasures, which was pretty amazing. The science succeeded, the policies failed, would be the way I would put it. And there is a tremendous amount of hand-wringing and recognition. We can't let this happen again. And there, I, I, I can't begin to recount all the different efforts that are going on right now, attempting to create different governance structures, different treaties, different ways of setting up institutions, uh, setting up arrangements so that we don't find ourselves in this situation again. So far, I'm not impressed, right? So far, I'm not impressed. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. It's just, it's just extremely difficult, extremely difficult. Well, I want to speak to one of those initiatives, which is the notion of a global pandemic treaty. Right. And I've got to say, when I discovered that it was originally drafted within the WHO, I realized that I suspect it has no future. But I don't see it coming out of the, I don't see it coming, I don't see an initiative coming from the governments, especially the largest governments, who might be willing to and who are necessary for a treaty to actually happen. So let's talk just a bit about your view of of a pandemic treaty I assume you think it would be a good idea, but is that a fair assumption? And if so, how to make it happen? Oh, look, the right kind of global pandemic treaty would be a fabulous idea, right? Especially a treaty that had some teeth to it and that also was supported by the most powerful countries in the world in the most fulsome way possible, right? And there may be some provisions of the treaty as it's finally adopted, that will be really helpful going forward. But am I optimistic about a global pandemic treaty that will be robust enough, that will be uh, endorsed sufficiently, that it will really change the trajectory of what happens the next time around? I don't know. I doubt it. I'm open. It would be great. And we're all watching but I'm not super optimistic. 
Well, this is a global, not an American podcast, but I can't imagine circumstances, to be very frank, under which the U.S. Senate would pass such a treaty. It's, it's, it's a deep worry, right? And it's not just the U.S. Senate. It's other countries in the world who are thinking, you know, why, right? Why should we do this? Now, there are good reasons for global cooperation that are self-interested. There are good reasons for each country around the world to recognize that even though, you know, that mantra that you started with, we're all in this together, was so far from the truth, right? There are pieces of it, pieces of a pandemic where that is true, right? This pathogen, as most pathogens, as all pathogens, knows no borders, has that. That was another line that came through. But it is true that there are good self-interested reasons for wanting at least to have a global uh, early surveillance system that is really functional, right? Uh, and there are countries in the world who are saying, if we're going to have a robust, really functional global surveillance system, there has to be some sort of quid pro quo because many of these viruses emerge first in low and middle income countries, right? So if we're going to share our specimens and we're going to share our findings, we need to get some kind of purchase on medical countermeasures as a consequence and a kind of reciprocity arrangement. So there is that. There's also self-interest in terms of geopolitics, which I'm guessing is more your world than mine, but I became very, very engaged in these issues as the pandemic emerged. We had a lot of pandemic international relations stuff going with China and Russia essentially moving into spaces and parts of the world offering their vaccines to gain kind of political advantage on the global stage and the West, to use a, that term uh, in quotes, was caught a little flat-footed in that process. So many, many countries made deals with Russia and China uh, for access to vaccines that turned out to be not that great, but that's a separate issue. And there are lessons there geopolitically. We have to be very, very careful about our standing in the world uh, next time around and how we could perhaps parlay what is, you know, ethically appropriate into something that is also geopolitically advantageous. So there's that. And people are thinking very seriously about those kinds of reasons for going into a more global um, approach to pandemic uh, response. And then there's just, you know, the good ethics reasons, the reasons why we, we ought to be concerned with uh, the welfare and uh, human rights of all peoples of the world and not just the people who live within our borders. The short response to what you just said is, of course. <laughs> Unfortunately, the longer response is uh, we don't do that. We don't do that in any systematic close to our heart kind of fashion. And the we in this case, I, I, I pick up your term, the West. It's not just an American failing, it's European failing as well. Their rhetoric is somewhat better than American rhetoric, perhaps, but the reality isn't. I think that's fair. I think there are some exceptions. There were some European countries who were uh, and always have been more invested in uh, a commitment to a globally more fair world. I think of Norway as a great example. Absolutely. Good point. But as a general matter, right, 
yeah. all countries of the world were deeply concerned. They all pursued what I, I, I've sometimes heard referenced as a no regrets policy. We've got to take care of our people and we've got to have stockpiles because we don't want to have any regrets later. We don't want to have to say to our own people, look, we're sorry, we don't have enough vaccines for you because we gave a bunch of vaccines over to, the thir- to, to people in low and middle income countries. That wasn't actually what countries were facing, but that's what the countries were fearing. That's what political leadership was fearing. They did not want to be in a position where they would have to go back to their own people and say, you know, that vaccine that should have had your name on it, well, it went to some person in some nameless country somewhere. We're really sorry. That wasn't the choice, but that's how it was framed up. It was like this politically no regrets. We don't want to be in a bad space here. And further, the to the point you just made, the ethical discussions that occurred during the pandemic and have occurred since the pandemic tend to be among ethicists, tend to be among health professionals, tend not to be among the decision makers who made those decisions badly framed or misframed in the event and probably will next time as well. I think that's largely true, Alan. I think there are some people in positions of political power in multiple countries around the world who are sensitive to the fact that if only for self-interested reasons, we need this to happen differently the next time around. There is some, and, and lest you know, people listening to this podcast become completely depressed, there are efforts, for example, to increase the uh, production capacity uh, in uh, the global south of medical countermeasures. And that will help a lot, right? So, so part of the dependence problem, you know, we talk about how countries want to be energy independent or they want to be food independent. Uh, uh, they want to be pharmaceutical um, goods independent as well. And so for better or for worse, misguided or not, uh, there is this sort of feeling that if only there had been more places in the world where these vaccines could have been produced, there might have been more equity in access to vaccines. So, and there is some push in that direction and some investment in that direction. And that's, that's really good. That's, that's really, really good. But is it enough? Probably not. I mean, there's sort of patent concerns. There are all kinds of worries that are operating here. And we would push, you know, many times that I was in full disclosure, I was on uh, and still am on a WHO committee that uh, helps advise in setting policies for vaccine access and for vaccine approval. And in that process, we would have presentations from vaccine manufacturers from around the world, and we would push about their plans for essentially production um, for low and middle income countries. And let's put it this way. The answers were sometimes extremely discouraging in part because they just weren't being pushed by their governments to do otherwise. Quite the opposite, in fact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening so far. I hope you're enjoying the conversation as much as I have. If you haven't already, please subscribe on the platform of your choice and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now back to today's discussion, sponsored by the Stavros Niarchus Foundation, SNF. Let me switch gears slightly. One of the standard talking points during the pandemic was follow the science, which got interpreted by some people as meaning follow the scientists, but that's a different point. 
Should policy decisions from your point of view about global health emergencies be made by scientists alone? Who should be in the room? Put aside how we might construct this room next time, but, but who should be in the room? So somebody some at some point is going to make a list of all the aphorisms that were used in the pandemic, like we're all in this together and follow the science. Right? Both of those are not true, right? We were not all in this together in the same way. That's not how the world responded. And you don't just follow the science. It's impossible to simply follow the science because when we're talking about policy for several reasons, one, when you talk about policy decisions, you have to take account of multiple uh, dimensions of what makes life go well, not just science specific to health. You've got to take account of the economy. You've got to take account of the impact on children, which is very, very different developmentally and otherwise and so on. You've got to take account of liberties of religious and spiritual commitments. I, I could go on, right? No policymakers were making these decisions on, based on the science alone. You can't just follow the science, even if the science was perfect, which of course it could not have been. Right. This is, you know, as we heard another one, this is a brand new pathogen. We've never faced anything like this before. And uncertainty was the defining characteristic of this pandemic, scientific uncertainty from beginning through into now. We just had to make calls. The the world had to make calls. Governments had to make calls. The World Health Organization had to make calls based on the best available evidence at the time which was often very spotty or almost non-existent in some cases, and also not only based on the science. So this, you know, business about following the science and where the science leads us is just from an ethics point of view, doesn't make sense. And from a real world standpoint, doesn't make sense. That said, to make policy decisions in defiance of the, of the scientific evidence is also completely crazy. Uh, you ask who should be in the room. Well, of course you need scientific expertise in the room, but you also need expertise with respect to the economy and expertise with respect to child welfare and expertise with respect to mental health. And political expertise is absolutely going to be there. People are worried in liberal democracies. They're worried about getting reelected in other forms of government, they're worried about holding, you know, holding the reins and, and squashing opposition. I will say, as someone who does ethics for a living, I have that hammer, I see a nail, but I deeply believe that people who think about these kinds of incredibly difficult decisions from an ethics standpoint also need to be in the room. As well as representatives of civil societies, both nationally and globally. Let's segue perhaps to the last question, which is the future. COVID was only the most recent pandemic, and it is certainly not the last. There, as you well know, there are scientists who argue that we've entered a new era of infectious disease because of climate change, among other factors. The WHO is worrying about disease X, which seems to be anything we haven't thought of yet is called disease X, although that may be, there may be a more precise definition. Are we prepared for the next pandemic? No, but we're not prepared for any of the great challenges that we're facing. So you reference climate change. I think any reasonable person who thinks about these great challenges, these major threats, 
like climate change or a killer pandemic, would have to conclude we're not in a good place. Right. That said, I, I don't think the response to reasonable skepticism about our ability as a species, as a community, as a world, as a nation to respond appropriately to these big threats is to just throw up your hands. We have to keep trying. We don't have a choice. I hate to end with the L word, which in this case is leadership, uh, and, and not speaking about particular politicians in the United States or elsewhere, but it does seem to me that what we most are lacking here is a a commitment by leaders, particularly in the major industrial countries, particularly in Europe and the United States, uh, to the kind of integrated leadership that you've described that would, in fact, open that room to scientists and economists and civil society and ethicists, et cetera. So the decisions, not after the pandemic hits, but before it comes, uh, are well-informed, rational, thoughtful decisions. Any any hope to get there? I need some hope here, Ruth. I was trying at the end of my last comment to say, look, you can't give up. We don't really have a choice. Right. So we have to we have to push forward. And there are lots of people who are working incredibly hard to try to create structures that will be better next time around, just as there are people killing themselves, trying to come up with reasonable global structures to respond to climate change. Uh, Let me say one thing. Let me say two things. Can I say two things? You may say two things. I can say two things. So the first is I, I really want to underscore and I think and I know the same is true. And I'm picking climate change just because it is one of the other, if not the most important other challenge that we face as a human species, that it cannot be overstated how many people worked incredibly hard, how many people are still working incredibly hard in pandemic preparedness and in climate change to try to turn this trajectory around, right? So for people listening, it is, it's a small army around the world, right, of well-intentioned, really talented, really hardworking people who are killing themselves, right? Trying to make a difference. And that I think we should all take uh, some comfort in. It's not like people are not working on these problems. It's not like people didn't work on these problems. I think there also were instances, if we go to leadership, there are leaders around the world who tried, right, to do uh, let's, for lack of more time, the right thing in the context of this pandemic and want to do the right thing in the context of climate change. It's not clear that the global incentives or national incentives are such that they actually can. So even if you've got people of integrity or people of goodwill in politically powerful positions, and we don't have nearly enough of those as we should have, but even where we've got the best of them, it's not like they're operating in a political or economic environment that makes it very easy for them to do the right thing. It's quite the opposite. You know, there's been a lot of work looking to see whether, you know, did the pandemic, did the policies proceed better or were they more ethically defensible depending on the kind of governance structure a country had? And surprisingly, there's not a lot of evidence that it made a huge difference, like whether you were in a functioning liberal democracy or whether you were not. 
uh, a lot turned on whether you had competence. So it's, let me throw out a, the C word. We need not only the right kinds of leaders, we need competent. We need competence. We need plans. We need actual actionable guidance for how to proceed. And we don't have that either yet. Why don't we leave it there? Because I think if we keep this up, we're going to talk ourselves into even more blackness and despair. Yeah, I really want to end with the the talent and the commitment. And and I think the hope that sits with people who are in the generations coming up, who've watched this with their mouths open, right? How did this happen? And maybe under their watch, it won't. Well, and we've got to find ways to encourage uh, their engagement with the political process, because if they decide now politics is for losers, then we are lost. We need them in the room. I could not agree more. I could not agree more. So bringing up that next generation, uh, not only with an understanding of what's at stake, but with an appreciation of the importance of their taking taking a stand and getting involved and going into politics and going into government. So critical, absolutely critical. And all I can add is inshallah. Exactly. Thank you for listening to this episode of New Thinking for New World. I'm Alan Stoga, podcast host, and I look forward to your joining our next conversation. Remember, tell us what you think at telbergfoundation.org.